The song Arirang, which the bell choir played so beautifully, I think, and, and also was the topic of the video, is actually a pretty good introduction to Korean culture. It rises from a deep place in the Korea's past and Korean tradition, but it's also evolved. As the culture has evolved, there are endless versions, traditional to ultra-modern, some sad, some rousing, and Korean culture, to me, is like that sameness and simplicity on the surface and yet a world of variation and subtlety once you get below the surface. I first traveled to Korea to teach English in 1993 and I stepped out of the terminal at Seoul's Kimpo Airport and instantly realized I was in a place as different from my native Colorado as it could be. I mostly grew up in a desert we got all our water from winter snow falling in the mountains. But in Asia and Korea, winters are cold and dry with hardly any snow. And then, of course, summer brings torrential monsoon rains, heavy enough to break down umbrellas and flood streets. Even the summer humidity in Michigan can't match a sticky day in Korea. People are people everywhere, but Korean culture was so different to me it made my head snap and I learned how counterproductive it was to look at such a different culture through a narrow lens. You can bring it down to history. European and American history have really been pretty privileged. Protected by great oceans, we've been free of the threat of invasion. We've been able to colonize and exploit other cultures. Natural resources allowed us to be on the leading edge of the Industrial Revolution. Korea, on the other hand, is a small nation trapped between great powers, China and Japan, and also Russia. Korea is a land with relatively few resources with a long history of invasion, occupation, and oppression by others. So how could we hope to see things the same way? The Republic of South Korea has one of the highest population densities in the world, slightly less land than Michigan's lower peninsula by itself, but more than 50 million people because they traditionally value hard work and education. South Korea has achieved economic miracles. When the Korean War ended, Koreans had no electricity to speak of, no tall buildings, no industry, and no food. Starvation was rampant. And, of course, over the next half century, South Korea built a world-class economy, hosted the Olympics, and they'll host them again this winter, and other world-class events. Korean companies have now built several of the tallest buildings in the world, including the tallest 163-story structure in the Middle East. South Korea and North Korea are in the news, of course. And they're both rooted in the same ancient culture, but they've taken it in very different directions. South Korea is a monument to hard work, number one, education, ambition, and cultural change. North Korea has adapted the equally ancient hermit, kindi hermit kingdom tradition, ruthless authority, and hardly any connection with the outside world. Of course, their nuclear program has become notorious. 
but they're still an impoverished nation in every other way. Millions of North Koreans have died of starvation over the years, and malnutrition is rampant. As a just an example, as a propaganda response to South Korea's economic success, North Korean leaders decided in 1987 to build a 105-story hotel in the middle of their capital, Pyongyang. They put up the steel and the outer facing and also built a whole freeway to take people to the hotel, and then construction shut down, partly because they ran out of money and also partly because the engineering itself is so bad the building cannot be completed. And the complex still stands, a crumbling thousand-foot shell with its crumbling empty freeway that no one uses. They have hung a huge sign on it bragging about the nuclear program. But that's context. But I think it helps to remember that both Koreas come out of the most Confucian culture in the world. And Confucianism is all about relationship. But the Korean version hardened into obligation and obedience. Obligation to family obedience to authority, children's obedience to parents, women's obedience to men. South Korean culture evolved and modernized, and it's lost a lot of that hard edge, but North Korea still worships authority. Kim Jong-un is still just one more in a a centuries-old line of decadent tyrants. And one way to get real insight into the Korean character is to visit a small farm in the mountains. Korea is so mountainous, only 15% of the land can even be farmed. Hillsides are terraced into tiny fields, many of them smaller than this room. They tend to each plant by hand, nursing, nursing and nurturing it in the rocky soil. Endless, monotonous labor and devotion to duty are central to the Korean character dominated by more powerful neighbors, and that's where their worldview is rooted. 1,300 years ago, Korea was divided into three warring kingdoms, Koguryo in the north, Baekje in the southwest, and Shilla in the southeast. The Shilla kingdom was dominated by an elite warrior class called the Hwarang, and the greatest among them was a general named Kim Yushin. And he signed a military treaty with China and set out to unify the Korean peninsula. And in 660 A.D., he and his Chinese allies invaded the neighboring Baekje kingdom. And I visited the ancient capitals of both lands. Baekje was more culturally and artistically advanced than Shilla. But Baekje's king was an irresponsible young man named Wee Ja who was interested only in an elegant social life. Stylish young women and men from across the land flocked to his court while he left the actual governing to his advisors. And his military advisor was a man called Gebek. And Gebek notified the king of the invasion, but the king ignored him at first. And then when it became obvious how serious the situation was, the king fled leaving Quebec to face the invaders alone. And Quebec knew he could not beat an army ten times more powerful than his, so on his way to the battleground, he went home and killed his wife so that she would not suffer the dishonor of capture. Absolute duty. Honor was more important than life. 
Quebec soldiers fought long and bravely, but they had no chance. Kim Yushin killed Quebec. But before the Shilla army could surround the palace, all the women of the king's court climbed to the hill behind the palace and jumped off a high cliff, killing themselves to avoid capture. And I visited that place. It's called Nakwa'am, or Falling Blossom Cliff, and it's still an important shrine. Kim Yushin went on to conquer the Koguryo kingdom as well and founded the first dynasty to rule all of Korea called the Unified Shilla Kingdom toward the end of the 8th century. And over the centuries, other countries, say China and England, for example, changed ruling dynasties dozens of times. But in that same time period, Korea has had only three Stability and authority were that important. Unified Shilla was uh, eventually replaced by the Koryo dynasty, which gives Korea its name. And then 600 years ago, the Chosun dynasty came to power and lasted into the 20th century. Chosun means land of the morning calm. By the way, that's where that phrase comes from. North Korea still calls itself Chosun to keep that sense of ancient dynasty. And while we may see Kim Jong-un as inept and self-indulgent, we're kidding ourselves if we expect him to be deposed. Koreans are very loyal, and they're very tough and enduring. They have a saying, that which cannot be cured must be endured, and Koreans are better at enduring than anybody. They've had to. And I think... Honestly, it's hard for an American to even comprehend that attitude. Going back to religion, basically you could say Western religion tends toward being about reaching paradise, individual goals. Korean religion, Asian religion is communal. And Korean religion really centers, I think, on embracing one's fate. After all, Buddhism is uh, not about overcoming one's karma. It's about embracing one's karma, and Korean Confucianism shares that same ethic. Now, South Korea particularly has moved into the modern world, and I have to say, on religion, uh, Koreans tend to be much more rational and accepting of difference than Americans. But that ancient sense of pride, honor, determination, and acceptance of hardship is still important to the Korean character. China and Japan invaded Korea many times. The Mongols invaded in the 1200s and again in the 1300s. The Japanese invaded in the 1500s and then Manchurians in the 1600s. And Korea's reaction was was to isolate itself, which North Korea still does. In the 1800s, Korea's royal family isolated itself even from their own people. If you go to Changduk Palace in the middle of Seoul, it's so walled off behind gardens and trees, you forget you're even in a huge city. Meanwhile, Japan, of course, saw the advantage of Western technology. They opened their society, industrialized, became a world power. Uh, Korea's decadent Monarchy was no match for China or Japan, either one. And Japan particularly was ambitious and powerful. They occupied Korea and went on to occupy parts of Russia as well, provoking the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, which Japan easily won. Peace talks 
between Japan and Russia took place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, moderated by President Theodore Roosevelt, no less. And for his part in working out a treaty, Roosevelt received the Nobel Peace Prize. But here's the catch. Europeans wheedled Japan into giving back the Russian territory they'd conquered, but behind the scenes, the United States worked out a secret protocol, the Taft-Katsura Agreement, in, returning for, in return for giving back Russian territory and for giving the United States a free hand to do whatever we wanted in the Philippine Islands, we gave Japan a free hand to do whatever they wanted in Korea. And inspired by European-American examples, or at least uh, we're not in a position to preach on this, Japan colonized Korea ruthlessly. They suppressed Korean music and culture. They forced Koreans to speak Japanese, drafted Koreans into Japanese labor camps, and exploited Korean resources. For example, Japan had passed laws that protected large expanses of their own forest, but they still needed lumber. So they completely stripped Korea of trees. There were like five trees left in the whole nation by the end of World War II. And to this day, Arbor Day, which honors the replanting of trees as a patriotic act, is still a major holiday in Korea. Southwestern Korea, which once was the Baekje Kingdom, has always had a rebellious streak, even after the peninsula was unified. And in 1919, student protests started in the city of Gwangju, which is near the old Baekje capital, and Japan crushed the demonstrations ruthlessly, killing, killing and arresting a thousand people, while the rest of the world ignored the carnage. Nothing new, nothing old there. But it was about this time that the song Arirang became a symbol of Korea's longing for peace as the lover which had left and freedom. But again, as I say, before we get self-righteous toward Japan, we need to reflect that we were the ones who were holding Japan's coat while they beat up on Korea. And Japan's occupation of Korea was not much different from England's occupation of Ireland after all and arguably not as bad as what we Euro-Americans did to Native Americans here. It's easy to look down on other cultures or find their acts shocking, but we've done stuff too. Koreans are still grateful to the United States for winning the Second World War and forcing Japan out of Korea, despite our role in authorizing that occupation in the first place. The Korean term for the United States, by the way, is miguk, which translates as beautiful land. But even then, the end of World War II, of course, Korea's times, hard times, were far from over. Cold War diplomacy split Korea in two, and North Korea was ruled by a Soviet protege, Kim Il-sung. Like some earlier Korean monarchs, Kim believed in isolation, absolute authority, and jaw-dropping self-aggrandizement. He claimed to have been born at the top of Baekdu Mountain, which is a sacred place, and that his son, Kim Jong-il, was born there as well. 
And of course, as soon as Americans withdrew our troops, Kim Il-sung invaded the South, which is what kicked off the Korean War. South Korea's rulers were not angels either. Korea's first president, Lee Sing-man, was not nearly as brutal as Kim Il-sung, but he twice won re-election when the other candidate mysteriously died on the eve of the vote. And then an army general, Park Chung-hee, seized power. But while Park's uh, dictatorship was brutal, he was open to outside ideas. He brought industry and investment to South Korea and opened the economy to world trade, which has continued to expand since. He was assassinated in 1979, and another general, Jun Do-hwan, seized power. And in 1980, thousands of college students in Gwangju staged protests against him, demanding democratic rule. Now, the United States had kept overall military command ever since the Korean War, and Jun had to ask us for permission to put down. the student demonstrations at the time america's president was jimmy carter very decent man but he was facing a difficult election campaign and the last thing his administration wanted was unrest in korea so they gave john a free hand to use force and 1300 years after kim yu shin korean soldiers once again marched against the ancient Big J lands and they were just as brutal as the Japanese had been nobody knows how many people were killed this time because the victims were buried in unmarked mass graves but best estimates are around 3000 years later popular opposition did drive Jun from power and South Korea did struggle its way to a genuinely representative government in 1979 while I was working in Korea or excuse me in 1997 while I was working in Korea Jun and his deputy No Tae-woo were convicted of treason and murder for the Gwangju massacre but I I found out Korea's high opinion of the United States was never the same after 1980 now in my time in korea i gained deep sympathy for what korea has been through along with some remorse for the role the united states has played in their misery there's a saying in korea quote when america sneezes korea catches pneumonia and that saying is still relevant given the attitude our current president has toward the Korean pen- peninsula with 8000 long range field cannons presided zeroed in on Seoul a city of 20 million people almost Korea is really the world's biggest hostage situation and frankly i don't think donald trump gets that someone needs to be the adult in the room when you're dealing with North Korea and, and I just don't see that in Trump's playbook that's just my opinion most Koreans I've talked to recognize the good intentions of most Americans and that we don't necessarily support what our government does but I've also talked to many who resent how easy it is for us to make uninformed choices that have life or death consequences for people in other lands not just korea i found 
Korean culture as my little study in Asian culture to be deep and complex. A 20-minute sermon can't even scratch the surface. But I think one final thing we can learn from the two Koreas is that culture is not destiny. All Koreans rose from the same cultural roots. All Koreans I've met tend to be hardworking, ambitious, and dutiful. North Korea emphasized hard work, isolation, and control. And as a result, it remains one of the poorest countries in the world and a growing source of danger in the whole region. South Korea emphasized the ancient ideals of hard work, education, and adapting to necessity. And they learn new ways, open themselves to outside influences, and have become one of the most successful economies in the world. And I think there's a lesson there for us, if we care to learn it. Amen. May it be so.